Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's why I say there's much that we can do to evaluate our spiritual lives by just looking at the way we use what God has given to us. Remember, you don't own it. God does. When we speak of stewardship, we're saying it's 100% His, and someday we will give an account for what God has entrusted to us. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl is in the book of James, chapter 5, as he begins his new sermon titled, When Money Talks. We will see that James deals with the subject of possessions and how we should relate to things with a godly perspective. Let's join Pastor Carl in James, chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the epistle of James, James chapter 5. If you happen to be here for the very first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this marvelous little letter. And James, who of course is a half-brother of the Lord Jesus, he's helping us to understand what God wants and then how to apply it. He instructs us so that we can put it into practice. In many ways, this little letter is Christianity in shoe leather. And this morning, he deals with a rather delicate subject, at least in some people's thinking, and it's the subject of money and riches. Both Jesus and James reminds us that you can test a person's spirituality, among other ways, by how he views and handles money and material things. I heard about a grandpa who won $5 million in the clearinghouse sweepstakes, and they were afraid to tell him because he had somewhat of a weak heart, and they thought, well, this news might just do him in, so maybe we'll get the pastor since he has a way with words. And so after lunch, they went out on the porch swing, and gradually the pastor transitioned to the subject, and he said, Grandpa, let me ask you a question. What would you do if you won $5 million? He said, well, that would be easy. I'd give it all to the church, all of it to the church. And with that, the pastor died. (laughs) Well, listen, our actions and reactions say a whole lot about our hearts and how we view money. It sounds like you have found the text. If you're new, we preach out of the Bible every week because God could care less what I think. The only authority we have is the holy, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and that's what we're reading this morning. James chapter 5, beginning now in verse 1, the Scripture is up on the screens in front of you. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth And led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. 
Now, let me set the broad context and then the immediate context. Every passage of Scripture has a context. And if you take a section of Scripture out of its context, you can easily distort its meaning. If you've been with us, many of you have been reading this letter once a week. And some of you have done it every single week since we started, though I haven't been in the book every single week. You've been reading it once a week, and you're beginning to bleed the book of James. You know it inside and out. And as you read and reread a book, you can see easily how it divides. And this epistle has three major divisions. Chapter 1 is the first section where it deals with the development of faith. And if you remember in chapter 1, he dealt with three problems. He dealt with the problem of pain. He dealt with the problem of temptation. And he dealt with the problem of not applying Scripture to your life. Then in chapter 2, under the same, uh, a, new, a new section, chapter 2, he deals with the distortion of faith. And in these three chapters, 2, 3, and 4, he shows how faith can be distorted. And so in chapter 2, he deals with our testimony as it relates to people, how we interact with different people who maybe are unlike us, as it deals with our works or the lack thereof. And then in chapter 3, our testimony is it deals with our tongue. And then finally, our tongue that should speak the wisdom that comes from above. And then in chapter 4, if you remember, he deals with three problems that we should avoid, three areas that are kind of prickly, thorny issues. First, he deals with the problem of worldliness, that God has not called his people to be worldly. By worldly, I mean ungodly, not caring about the people of the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but we are not to allow the value system of the world to pollute our lifestyle. Then in verses 11 and 12, he deals with the problem of judging, how a believer unfairly evaluates another Christian in the body of Christ. And then in verses 13 through 17, if you were here last time, he deals with the third problem, the problem of perspective. And he is encouraging us as believers to live our lives with a view of eternity. Because this life, 60, 70, 80 years at best, is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then is gone. So, chapter 1, the development of faith, chapters uh, 2 through 4, the distortion of faith, and now we turn the corner once again, and we come to chapter 5, where, as you can see on that chart, he deals with the display of faith. Let me kind of break down chapter 5. I hope to preach at least four, maybe five messages on the fifth chapter as we are in it, but so you know where we are headed in the weeks ahead. And verses 1 through 6 that we will deal with today, he deals with the subjects of possessions, what you own. Um, how are we to relate to things with a godly perspective? Then in verses 7 through 12, he returns to the subject of patience. He's already addressed this issue, but now he's going to camp on it. If you're here today and you lack patience, come back next week. We will learn from God's Word, how do you develop patience? And then third, in verses 13 through 18, he moves past the economic, past the personal realm, to the realm of the physical. And so he bleeds together two things that always go together, healing and prayer. And the last two verses, 19 and 20, of course, serve as the conclusion. And this is an important chapter because, among other things, he's dealing with lukewarmness. 
In the end of the age, before Christ comes, the Bible teaches that the church, the body of Christ, will be typified not by a passionate zeal for Christ, but by lukewarmness. And while that may typify many, it does not have to typify you or me. Now, with God's help, let's try to unpack the first six verses. There's a note-taking outline. If you're here today for the first time, it's in your bulletin. Those of you who are online, live streaming, wherever you may be in the world, you can print it out, and uh, you can take notes as well. Now, this morning, the subject is when money talks. And to illustrate his point to this assembly of first century Christians, he addresses the subject of the wicked rich. And when you hear what he says about the wicked rich, it's easy to say, go get them, James, kick them in the behind, and not think that this really applies to you. But it does. Now, he's addressing folks who had a spurious confession, those who are rich fakers, so to speak. They may have professed to have known Christ, but did not really possess him. We saw that subject taken up earlier where he said that faith without works is dead, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and not by works, but the faith that saves is never alone. If we're genuinely born again, our life will change from the inside out. So know that he is dealing with these rich fakers, many of whom could care less about what he has to say. But he's describing them not for their sake so much as for our sake. Many of them might never read the epistle of James. But he uses them as an illustration to apply to us. He does the exact same thing that the Lord does many times. For instance, if you know the parable of the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12, he describes that man who amassed all these goods and what the outcome of his life was like. And then he said, therefore, I say to you, you who believe. So he uses an illustration of a lost person so that we might guard our hearts and not fall into the same trap. And so he's dealing with people who are self-centered, who are indulgent, who are guilty of materialism, and he doesn't want the church to fall into the same thing. Remember, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's why I say there's much that we can do to evaluate our spiritual lives by just looking at the way we use what God has given to us. Remember, you don't own it. God does. When we speak of stewardship, we're saying it's 100% His, and someday we will give an account for what God has entrusted to us. So what James does is he gives us three timeless principles for us to apply as Christians. The first principle concerns the folly of stagnant wealth. The folly of stagnant wealth. How foolish it is to have much and just let it sit there where it's stagnant. And of course, when it comes to stagnant wealth, he wants us to understand something about its wail, its cry, and something about its witness. Look at verse 1. He first addresses its cry. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. When he says come now, that's a first century expression that we might paraphrase. Listen up. Get this. Pay close attention. The expression serves, among other things, too, to introduce us to a new group of people. 
Remember, if you were here last time in 413, he was dealing with the presumptuous fool, the fellow who said, well, we're going to go to such and such a city for such and such a period of time and make such and such a profit. And James says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're here for a moment. You're a vapor that appears and then vanishes. Well, he's moving from that group to the wicked rich, and he commands them. It's a command. Weep and howl. The word weep, clio, means to sob out loud. It's used in Scripture of someone who has a deep cry in their heart because they are wailing over someone whom they have lost. Uh, it's not some little boohoo. It's used in Mark chapter 5 of the synagogue official who lost his precious little daughter, and he is weeping. He is mourning. It's also used in the New Testament of someone who is weeping and crying out in shame because of God's condemnation upon their life. And so he is saying, look, in light of the future, in light of where you are headed, weep and howl. Now, I think it's important to state here that it's not a sin to be rich because many of God's choicest servants in the Bible were rich. Abraham, who's called the father of the faithful, is such a person who illustrates that. In fact, James, if you remember in chapter 2, used him as an example of saving faith. The Bible says of Abram, his name before God furthered it to Abraham in light of the promise. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. Think about King David. He is called a man after God's own heart. Certainly not a perfect man, but the overall direction of his life was he had a heart for God. And when God writes his obituary, the chronicler says, then he died in a, rip, a ripe old age, full of days, riches, and honor. Or think about Job. He was very, very rich. And even before he lost it all and God restored his wealth twofold. Before that, God said this of this man in Job 1.3, who's described as a righteous man. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So here was a man who was wealthy, he would be super rich in our day, so to speak. Think about the one who buried the Lord Jesus. One of the reasons we know that the Bible is authoritative, the only book that God ever wrote, is because of fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53 is an amazing chapter of Scripture where there are dozens of prophecies enumerated concerning what will happen when the Messiah comes to die. And one of those prophecies is that there would be a rich man involved in his death. And indeed, Joseph of Arimathea was that rich man. He was a great man of God. He ended up being converted. Or think about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. As you read the accounts of them in Scripture, they too had to have been rich. In fact, it's not wrong to be rich. Listen to what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 8 to 18. The Lord your God, for it is He who has given you power to make wealth. God doesn't give you power to do evil, but God can give you power to make wealth. In Psalm 35, we're told, The Lord be magnified, who delights in the prosperity of his servant. He delights in the prosperity of his people. Now, understand, we're not talking about prosperity theology. 
We're not talking about the error that T.D. Jakes and Joel Olstein and Kenneth Copeland, who says it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy, and, and that if you're truly spiritual, you'll be rich like they are. No, that's not what the Scripture is saying, and neither is it saying that the poor go to heaven and the rich go to hell. Now, that's a popular thought. I know in our day, typically in America, we tend to divide people into three broad categories. We speak of upper class, middle class, and lower class, economically speaking. But if you study the Scripture carefully, you will discover that there are really four categories of classifications. First, you might want to jot these down. There are those who are poor without and poor within. Poor without in that they possess very little of this world's goods. And there are millions of people who struggle every single day just to survive. Really, a couple billion people who would fall into this group. Um, they are poor without, and they are poor within, and that they've never found forgiveness. They've never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The second group that you could calculate from Scripture are those who are rich without and rich within. These are individuals like an Abraham or a Job who economically are very well off, but also spiritually. They're godly men. The third group might be those who are poor without and rich within. These are people who have very little of this world's goods, but they have been born again. They have met Christ in salvation. And a lot of people sitting here or listening to me in some part of the world say, that's me, Pastor. You've got my number. And the reason we tend to always categorize ourselves that way is because we can think of someone who has much more than we do. But for most of us, at least those who are in America, you will be considered by the rest of the world to be rich. Um, and think about it. You know, we have a warm place typically to lay our head at night. We have clothing that uh, takes care of us. We have more than we can often use. We have dwellings that protect us. We've been blessed in this, Amer in this America. And so, by the world's standards, most of the world considers the average American to be wealthy. We'll come back to that. There's a fourth category, and those are the people who are rich without and poor within. Rich without in that they have much of this world's goods, but oftentimes because their wealth controls them, they never find the Lord, and they are poor within, they are spiritually bankrupt. And that's the group that James is going to focus on this morning. Now, please understand, biblically speaking, wealth is morally neutral. The question is not what do you have, but what is it that has you? Abraham was a rich man, but he maintained his faith and his character. On the other hand, think about his nephew Lot. He too was very wealthy, but his character was deficient, though he was saved. The New Testament tells us he was a righteous man. He was saved, but he did not grow like he should have. And in the process, for the most part, he lost his family. Well, what was the difference between rich Abraham and rich Lot? Well, it was an issue of what it was that captured their hearts. The Bible warns in Psalm 62.10, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Now, you've often heard people say, well, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. 
But of course, the Bible never says that. It's one of the most misquoted verses in all of Holy Scripture. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's the love of money. Now, notice it says the love of money is a root. It doesn't say the root. Now, in some English translations, to smooth out the reading, we put the article there. But the article is not present in any Greek manuscript. So like in the New American Standard, in the New King James, it says it is a root, meaning it's not the only source of evil, but it is certainly a major taproot for evil. And again, it's not money, but is the love of money. If you remember in the parable of the sower, a man went out and sowed seed, and Jesus likens three of the soils to unbelievers and why it is that they do not respond in faith to Christ. And then the, the one good soil representing someone who responds to the gospel. And if you remember on the third soil, it was riches that captured the man's heart. Jesus said, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So if you love money, then you would do well to pay close attention to this command this morning, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So James is dealing with this idea of stagnant wealth, and he begins to unpack it in verses 2 and 3. He moves past its cry to its witness. Let's read verse 2 and then part of verse 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Now, in the New Testament era, there were basically three ways that a person would typically or could flaunt their wealth. One was food, the other was clothing, and the third was precious metals. The rich were those who ate well, they dressed well, and they spent their money lavishly. And so James introduces us to three basic ways which time and hoarding can rob a rich man of his wealth. He says here, your riches have rotted. And the word for rotted is always used, both in and outside of the Bible, of food or fruit that went bad. He's describing a man who hoards food, food that will inevitably rot. And again, it parallels the rich fool of Luke chapter 12. Remember that man? He tore down his kind barns. He built larger barns so he could store all of his grains and all of his food so that he could sit back, take his ease, and eat, drink, and be merry. And of course, the day he made that statement, thinking that he had entered into this lush retirement, Jesus said he died. Now, understand, nothing wrong with storing up grain or corn, but in the parable of the rich farmer, here was a man who hoarded. And that's what James is describing. Your riches have rotted, that is, they have spoiled. And the rich man, his God is gold, his creed is greed, and his motto is simply, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the rest, and poison it. And the implications on his heart are huge. 
the ramifications on his life are untold and that they can keep a man out of eternity because he lives only for the here and now. There are some people here today, uh, some people who should be here today who are not here because they're working, not because they don't have any choice, but because they want to make more money. And their priorities are all out of whack, and they consistently forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Sunday is no different from the rest of the week. Then notice in verse 2, he says, your garments have become moth-eaten. Another way a rich man would display his wealth was by his clothing. And there are different words translated for clothing, and this particular word for garment described the upper garment of the outer robe. And rich people would often make those outer garments very elaborate. They would put silver threads, sometimes even gold threads, through the clothing. They would put jewelry and embroider it very, very fancily, fancifully, and they would many times pass them down as heirlooms. And they were so valuable in the first century that they could become a form of currency. And you see that in both the Old and the New Testament. As this slide reminds us, Joseph, who became the prime minister of Egypt, uh, blessed his brothers with riches. The Bible says he gave them changes of garments. Or think about Samson. He told a riddle, and he said, if anyone can figure out my riddle, I will give him 30 linen garments. Or think about Naaman. He came to the prophet Elijah wanting to pay him with 10 changes of clothes. Or think about the apostle Paul on the negative side when he gathers the Ephesian elders together in Acts 20. He said, I coveted no man's silver or gold or clothes. What I want you to see is that rich people often wore their wealth on their sleeves. And James is saying it's foolish to do that. People do it today. You know, you see some guy who's bragging with his $2,000 pair of tennis shoes. I mean, come on now, $2,000 tennis shoes. And we have this prosperity preacher who supposedly had a $5,000 pair of tennis shoes with his Rolex watch hanging off his wrist. By the way, I have a Rolex here. Someone bought it for me in China. They paid 10 bucks for it. <laughs> in fact, I gave one to my son, and he was working in the White House at the time, and they were at this meeting around the table with Dick Cheney, and one of his first man, his right-hand man, and Cheney's right-hand man said, Jeremy, that is a really nice watch, a Rolex. And he flipped his wrist. He said, it's just like mine. Is that new? He said, yeah, my dad gave it to me for Christmas. And he said, you know, I can, can I see it? And he took it and he held it and he said, I can tell the difference between a fake one and a real one. This is the real thing. <laughs> no, it was a $10 Rolex. But what I want you to see is that even setting your heart on clothing it can become moth-eaten. I had a suit in my closet that I had not worn in a long time. You know, it was a little bit outdated. Didn't really want to throw it away yet. And then one day I thought, you know, I think I'll wear it for this occasion. And out I took it, and a moth had eaten a hole in it. Now it was good for nothing. As Pastor Carl reminds us, our actions and reactions say a whole lot about our hearts and how we view money. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 
7478 and requesting program James 012. Please remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.